chapter 30. We're going to work our way through two great, great chapters tonight. We're going to talk about the new covenant, Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31. And Lord, we ask that you bless tonight. Lord, we've come to learn, we've come to add some muscle to our faith, to grow our faith. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. So bless us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now imagine you haven't left the city for 18 months. Your pantry is empty. When the kids take a bath, you notice that their ribs are starting to show. Disease in the city's epidemic. Garbage is piling up in the streets. The rats are out of control. There's a stench in the air that you can't escape. And there's a foreign army camped just outside the city walls. These Babylonians, they have a ruthless reputation. They've toppled other cities. Every day they launch their taunts and their threats. You can see them out there preparing for attack. And every time you go to the temple to cry out to God for help, there are prophets there who assure you it's all going to be okay. Don't worry. They keep promising that God is going to deliver the city. Well, this was the situation facing the inhabitants of Jerusalem when Jeremiah penned chapters 30 through 33. These were the darkest days of Judah that Judah had seen since their Egyptian slavery. The people were scared. They were shaken. Jeremiah had the painstaking task of overseeing their final days. He was predicting disaster. He was pleading with the king to surrender. And yet, in the nation's darkest hour, God gave to Jeremiah in these chapters tonight their brightest hope. Though the nation had failed to obey the covenant that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, God was willing to strike a new deal with these people, a new covenant. The Jews will be exiles in Babylon for 70 years, but God will gather them to the land and do a new work in their hearts. They'll be changed. He will be their God, and they will be His people. This new covenant was intended for Israel, but we've become part of it through the cross of Jesus Christ. You remember on the night before He was crucified, Jesus activated this new covenant. At His last supper, He told His disciples, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That's what makes these chapters relevant to us. Well, chapter 30 begins. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. The chapters that we're going to read tonight, chapters 30 through 33, tonight and next, next Wednesday night, they actually are a book within a book. Uh, some expositors call this the book of consolation. He says, write in a book for yourselves all these words. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, the more you study the scriptures, the more sensitized you become to certain phrases. Expressions like we have here, the days are coming. 
or in other places, the latter days, or still the day of the Lord. These are all signposts pointing to the end of time, a day still future. A lot of the promises in these chapters tonight have yet to be fulfilled. At the time, Judah was about to be taken captive. They would remain in exile for a generation, 70 years, before God would move to regather Israel and Judah to the land. He says in verse 4, Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. You remember the false prophets, they were saying, Peace, peace! But that was not what the Lord was saying. It's interesting, the final judgment, that which is yet future, what the Bible calls great tribulation, is also preceded by shouts of peace. Judgment is is prefaced by a pseudo-peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 tells us, For you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Notice that, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. For we read in verse 6. And now, ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. Now I know some women who wish their husbands could taste a little bit of the pain of childbirth. Maybe they'd be a little bit more empathetic. But the day is coming when men as well as women will double over in pain. As Paul said of the last days, labor as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. He goes on and he says, So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. Paul in the New Testament, Jeremiah in the Old, they foresee the same time period. This period at the end of the age when judgment will come upon the earth and men, grown men, will double over like a woman in childbirth. Jeremiah foresees this day when all people will be sorrowful and in pain. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 ominously refers to this same judgment There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Jesus uses this same kind of language when he speaks of that terrible day in Matthew 24. Then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. As difficult as it was in Jeremiah's day, it will be worse for Judah in the future. If they think it's bad now, they ain't seen nothing yet. Pains and problems that are coming that will turn men pale. And notice the name that Jeremiah coins for this future judgment. This is an important name. We refer to the period yet future, this judgment, as great tribulation. But Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Hey, the whole world will be judged. But the central focus of these last seven years will be Jacob or Israel. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. The new covenant promises glorious days for Israel, but before the glory, they'll undergo severe punishment. Verse 8 tells us, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, 
that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. You see, after the time of Jacob's trouble, at the end of the seven years of tribulation, there will be a liberation. The Jews will be freed from Gentile domination. They'll be restored to self-rule. And notice this future Israel will serve the Lord. Apparently what is today a secular state filled with agnostic Jews will experience a spiritual revival, an awakening. We'll see in tonight's text the new covenant in all of its glory. The new covenant consists of three basic promises. And you need to really get this down because this is what the rest of your Bible is all about. The new covenant. First, Jews are regathered to their land. Second, a regeneration or a spiritual birth takes place in their hearts. And then third, the kingdom of David is reestablished over Israel. And this covenant unfolds in that order. The Jews are regathered, then a regeneration occurs, and then there's a reestablishment of the kingdom. Now this is the background for the famous meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. You remember the first Nick at night? Nicodemus came to visit Jesus and he asked him about the kingdom of God. Jesus told him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now remember the new covenant. Nicodemus saw that Judah had been regathered to the land. And now he wants to know about the kingdom. He wants to know when God is going to rid them of Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel. Nicodemus was either overlooking the middle promise of the new covenant or he was mistaking the religious zeal of Judaism for spiritual life. But what Jesus does in his conversation is he presses rewind. He says, wait a minute, go back to the second promise. Remember, these, this happens in order. The regeneration that the new covenant promises is more than just outward deeds and religious zeal, that which was Judaism. No, Jesus says, you have to be born again. God wants to spark spiritual life in you. Jesus says to Nicodemus, before God births his kingdom on this earth, he will birth new life in the hearts of the Jewish people. This is why the promise of the great tribulation or the purpose of the great tribulation is not only to judge the world but to purify the Jews. The time of Jacob's trouble is the period that God gets their attention where he humbles the Jews, where he brings them to repentance and shows them their need for the savior. There is a time yet future when the Jews will be born again, and that's what will usher in the third part of this new covenant, which is the kingdom of God. When the Jews bow to Jesus, when they receive His new birth, God will restore His kingdom on the earth. And for the first time since 586 B.C., a Jewish king will rule in Israel. Verse 9 tells us his title. It is David. Some folks believe that the King David mentioned here will actually be the real King David who, was who will be resurrected to rule over Jerusalem in that day. Obviously under the authority of the Messiah. But it also could be that David here is 
actually a title. It's referring to a dynastic name. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 7, an everlasting kingdom is promised to David and his descendants forever. And thus this future successor will take the name of his forefather, that is David. It's interesting, uh, Jesus in the Gospels, what was he called over and over again? The son of David. None other than Jesus is given this title, son of David. I believe that this person here in view will actually be our Lord who will sit on the throne of David when God restores his kingdom. And then verse 10 tells us, Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. Now the fact that Israel or Jacob has never had rest in the land and has, lived unaf- and has never lived unafraid to me is proof that this prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. Immediately following the Jews' return from Babylon, they were under Persian control. Then the Greeks oppressed them. Then finally the Romans dominated them. Even today, Israel lives in fear. Ominous foes are all around them. It makes them uneasy. It makes them afraid. It's only when Jesus returns and when he sits on David's throne that we'll see this prediction finally come to pass. He says, For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. This prophecy, too, is yet to be fulfilled. For the last 2,000 years, the wandering Jew has been a fugitive, has been a vagabond on the earth. Jews have migrated to just about every country on earth, and yet everywhere they've been, they've found trouble and persecution. And yet, in the end, the Jews will outlive all the other nations. In Genesis 12, God says that He will judge the nations by their treatment of the Jews. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. This is why Israel will survive, but her persecutors will be judged. Again, in the Great Tribulation, God is going to punish all the nations of the earth, but He's going to use that time to purify the Jews. He'll make a complete end of all the nations, but not a complete end of the Jews. He says in verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, there is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up, you have no healing medicines, all your lovers have forgotten you, they do not seek you. Now there could have been a time in which the Jews living there in Jeremiah's day could have repented, God would have saved them and delivered them. But he's saying to them, you've passed that point. Judgment is going to come. There are no healing medicines for you. Your affliction is incurable. He says, all your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. Her lovers were the false gods, the idols that Judah had worshipped instead of Yahweh. And now God wants to know, hey Israel, now that you're in trouble, where are your gods? Where are those gods that you've served? Are they going to come to your aid? And of course the answer was no. He says, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one. 
for the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased. Their plight was God's way of exposing the folly of their idolatry. They had trusted in the wrong God. He says, why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. Because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. God allowed Israel's hardships to wake her up. And yet he had not abandoned her forever, he says. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. Because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion. No one seeks her. Despite Judah's idolatry, in the end, the God she forsook is the God who will stand by her and bring her healing. Here God sounds like a loving father, doesn't he? You've sinned and I need to punish you, but I haven't put an end of you. I'm going to restore you and heal you. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Now the Hebrew word translated mound here is the word tell. Visit modern Israel today, and you'll find tells scattered all throughout the country. Mounds. You have Tel Aviv. You have Tel Dan. You have Tel Megiddo. In ancient times, when a city was conquered, the site was cleared. And the rubble from the former city was used to build a new city on top of the mound. And so you have these mounds. They were just cities after, who were built on top of each other time and time again. Over the centuries, the tearing down and the building up to make these mounds, this is still visible today in Israel. And here we're told that Israel is going to return to their land. And they're once again going to build cities on these ancient tales. Verse 19. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Again, he's going to regather Israel to the land and grow a great nation again. Their children also shall be as before. And their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be far among them, from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Here he predicts that Jews will one day rule over Jews. This is a glorious prophecy. Jewish self-government was denied them when the Babylonians took over. But God predicts that one day it will be restored. This is a glorious prophecy. They experienced a measure of this when they returned to the land under the Persians, but not fully. Jewish self-government was more often than not embodied in their right to capital punishment. The Romans stripped them of this right in 19 AD. This is why when they went to crucify Jesus, they had to get Pilate's permission the permission of the Roman governor. They didn't have that right in and of themselves. But here we're told that the days are coming when Jewish self-government is going to be restored. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, 
There we find a prophecy where Jacob, he blesses his various children. And he says of Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. This is an exciting promise. The scepter speaks of this right of self-rule. The term Shiloh refers to the Messiah. The prophecy here in Genesis predicts the right to self-rule will remain intact in Israel until Messiah appears on the scene. This is why when the Romans revoked this right, the right of corporal punishment in 19 AD, it caused great consternation among the rabbis. For in their minds, it it meant that God had broken His promises. The scepter had departed. And where was Messiah? That's what they thought. They didn't realize that he had come, and he was working at a carpenter's bench in the little village of Nazareth, preparing and waiting for his time. Verse 21 tells us, Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? The governor was a political ruler. Here we're told that the governor will be a Jew, but the governor will also approach the Lord. This means that he'll be a priest. Under the Old Covenant, there was a separation of both offices. Priests were from the tribe of Levi, and political officials, kings, were from the tribe of Judah. But this one ruler will be both. He'll be a royal priest. Only the Messiah has this right. And here again, God is making a new covenant with special prerogatives. Even the rabbis interpreted that this passage referred to the Messiah. Their targum reads, Messiah shall be revealed to them out of their own midst. And then verse 22, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And this is the whole point of this new covenant. God wants a personal relationship with His people. He wants a personal relationship with you, by the way. Now behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until He has done it and until He has performed the intents of His heart. Notice the phrases. In the latter days, you will consider it. Here Jeremiah concludes what I've mentioned throughout. The ultimate fulfillment of chapter 30 wasn't for his day, but it was for the latter days. A final judgment is yet to come, followed by a new covenant that God is going to make with His people. And here he mentions this judgment, the ominous language he uses. It'll be fierce, it'll be furious, a continuing whirlwind will fall violently on the head of the wicked. And yet this is followed by a chapter of hope, chapter 31. At the same time, says the Lord. While judgment is coming down upon the world, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Remember, the great tribulation, this final judgment, is for two purposes, to punish the world but to purify the Jews. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest. This is amazing. Israel will find grace in the wilderness. When judgment comes upon the world, God will purify the Jew. He will come and he will 
He will show grace upon these people. In other words, Israel will be saved. This is where it helps to read the end of the book. First. You know, you do that sometimes. You get a novel. You get interested. Well, I wonder how this really ends up. Yeah, this is where it's really helpful to read the end of the Bible first. Read the book of Revelation. For in Revelation chapter 12, halfway through this final period of judgment that we call Great Tribulation, a ruler known as the Antichrist, he turns on the Jews and he attacks Jerusalem. He invades their land. And the Jews in Jerusalem, they flee to the wilderness. Isaiah 16 identifies their wilderness hideout as the Edomite rock city known as Petra. It's there that God will protect His people. He will provide for them for three and a half years until the judgment is over and until rest comes to Israel. We've talked about this before. Here Jeremiah comments on this future episode. The prophet speaks very specifically. The Jews will find grace in the wilderness. Is it possible that while they're in this desert hideout, they'll reflect on the mistake they've made? They've embraced a false Messiah, an antichrist, and they'll turn to the true Christ, Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. Zechariah 12 seems to indicate this. It says, They will look on him who they pierced. They'll have a change of heart. Hosea 5, verse 15 predicts, Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will diligently seek me. One day, in this time of Jacob's trouble, Israel will repent. They'll look to Jesus, and they'll be saved by grace. The very same way you and I were saved, by grace through faith. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Isn't that a beautiful verse? I have loved you with an everlasting love. You know, if it were not for God's everlasting love, none of us would be saved, would we? It's His loving kindness that enticed us, that wooed us, that drew us to Himself. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells us we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. We're saved because God is love, not because we're so lovable. Faber once wrote, How you can think so well of us, yet be the God you are, is darkness to my intellect, but sunshine to my heart. Boy, if God did stop loving us, we wouldn't have a leg to stand on. We'd be doomed to hell forever. But we have nothing to fear, for His love for you is an everlasting love. He says, again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Here God is speaking of Israel's future restoration. There are people who commit, these are the people who committed spiritual adultery with idols. These are the people whom God compared to a harlot. And yet here He forgives them, and He rebuilds them, and He intends to redeem them. And apparently, God's restoration, His purification in a person's life is so thorough that He then calls them virgin. Isn't that amazing? That He would see us as that sort. Oh, virgin of Israel. How beautiful is that? That's the extent that God forgives. He says, You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. 
You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. He says, you'll go forth in dances. Life will be restored in Jerusalem. The people will rejoice. I had the great privilege many, many years ago. They've stopped doing it now. The last few trips we've made to Israel, uh, they, they don't have the performance anymore. But it used to be they had a, a Jewish dance, a folklore dance. And it was always held down at the YWCA, and we'd always take our group down and we'd see the dance. And it was so beautiful to see the Jewish dances and to see the uh, liveliness and the life and the excitement of the young people who performed them. And, and one day, they're all going to dance in Jerusalem is what he's saying to us. We, were, we happened to be there one year uh, on Independence Day. And we were down on the main drag. And I remember Donna and Kathy jumped out in the middle of the Jewish folks out in the middle of the street. And they all started dancing with them and started jumping around with them. And all, I kind of stood on the side and watched, you know. But they had, they had a wonderful time. And then here he says, the planters shall eat, shall plant and eat the vines as ordinary food. They'll eat the grapes as ordinary food. They'll plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. And by the way, uh, I've been there too, the mountains of Samaria. Today, Samaria is the West Bank, Palestinian territory. And here we're told that Israelis will plant vineyards on Samaria's mountains. I've seen those vineyards. One year, our tour group went to visit a kibbutz in the West Bank area around Shiloh. And we saw the vineyards that had been planted by the Israeli settlers just as Jeremiah predicted. Verse 6, For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. Now to make the trip from Jerusalem to Shiloh, we had to take an armored bus just in case we met any Palestinian hostilities. Sometimes the kids get a kick out of throwing rocks at these tour buses. And yet Jeremiah here foresees the day when the residents of Ephraim will freely go up to Jerusalem to worship God. They'll come from the West Bank to the city of Jerusalem to worship. No checkpoints, no searches, free passage. It'll be beautiful. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child. Together a great throng shall return there. And here Jeremiah foresees a mass return of Jews to their ancient land, to the land of Israel. And this is happening in our day. In fact, the most recent wave of immigration did come from the north country. From 1989 to 2006, nearly a million Jews from Russia and from the former Soviet Union immigrated to Israel. It was a tremendous challenge for the state of Israel. The Jewish state ended up assimilating 20, a 20% increase in their population. That would be like us you know, having to assimilate about 60 million people. You know, Think of the stress and on resources and on the infrastructure that would create. It was a really an amazing feat. And yet, uh, the Jews have prepared for the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, Jeremiah continues in verse 9. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. 
I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. And I believe these prophecies foreshadow a great influx of Jewish immigration that's yet to occur, that's still future. I believe that when Jesus returns to this earth, mourning and repentant Jews from all over the world will return to Israel. You know, we don't often consider the fact that there are 14 million Jews in the world and less than half of them, 6.1 million, live in Israel. When Jesus returns, he'll send out searchers to hunt down the Jews and return them to the land. Don't ever let anyone convince you that God is through with Israel. He is not, and the scriptures testify to it from cover to cover. Now hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. That's where we are, in the isles afar off. And say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. And keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Satan has tried to destroy God's people. But God will wrestle the Jews from Satan's hand and retrieve them to the land. Verse 12. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Streaming to the goodness of the Lord. For wheat and new wine and oil For the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. What a day that'll be. When Jesus returns, he'll usher in prosperity and joy for Israel. Today, Jews are returning to the land, but not to the Lord. Most Jews in Israel today are agnostic. But the day is coming when they will stream to the Lord's goodness, as Jeremiah puts it. There's an interesting prophecy in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, it's not Christmas time, but you probably recognize this as part of the Christmas story. This is a verse that's quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. We read it every Christmas. Ramah was near Bethlehem. It's where Rachel is buried today. Its women were considered her daughters, the daughters of Rachel, the women of Ramah. And thus, when Herod went to kill the babies of Bethlehem to eliminate the Messiah, this verse described the reaction of those ladies. Weeping, Rachel, weeping for her children. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. But in Jeremiah's day now, Ramah was the staging area for Nebuchadnezzar. This was where he would take the captured Jews and process them to be taken back to Babylon. In in the context of Jeremiah's day, Rachel, the mother of the nation, is mourning for the exiles who are being taken back to Babylon. And yet God speaks to Rachel. Thus says the Lord, 
Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. This is hope in your future. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Rachel is assured, she is comforted that her children will return. It's a promise that Israel will return to the land. And if you were in the city at the time, and you saw the handwriting, handwriting written on the wall, you saw the Babylonians outside, you knew what was about to happen, judgment was about to occur, it would have brought you great comfort to hear these promises. Verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim. And again, Ephraim is a tribal name. It's one of the, uh, another name for Israel. You surely have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. This is what was God was doing with the people. He was breaking the people of their stiff-necked, of their stubbornness and hard-heartedness. Just as you would break a wild buck. God was breaking His people Israel. He was domesticating them. He was fitting them for His yoke to be submissive to Him. Sometimes God has to do that with us, doesn't He? Just to break us of our stubbornness, of our pride. So that we'll be, live submissive and submitted to Him. But now Ephraim cries out, Restore me and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. You know, a symbol of ah, remorse, regret. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. And how does God respond when His people repent? Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. God's heart yearns for his people. and Thus he is quick to show mercy. Verse 21. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. He's saying to the exiles, remember the way home. I want you to come home. Follow the signs and landmarks back home. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? He said, don't be a gad about that is restless, aimless. Don't just flounder around in Babylon. Return to the land that God promised. He's doing a new work in Israel. He says, don't miss out, for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. In other words, don't miss out. Come home to Israel because God is going to do something that He's never done before. An unprecedented event is about to take place. A woman shall encompass a man. The earliest Jewish commentators saw in this verse a reference to the virgin birth of the Messiah. Before the time of Christ, one rabbi wrote in this, of this passage, Messiah is to have no earthly father. The birth of Messiah will be without defect. The birth of Messiah will be like that of no other man. Another rabbi put it. The birth of Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord as drops on the grass without the action of a man. The idea of a woman surrounding 
or encircling a man is a vivid description of her nurturing him in her womb. I believe the miracle of the virgin birth was not only predicted in Genesis 3 verse 15, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, but it was predicted by Jeremiah right here 600 years before the angel visited Mary. There are other commentators who see in this passage a foreshadowing of Revelation chapter 12 where Israel is the woman who brings forth the male child. This child, Messiah, rules the nations with a rod of iron. Either way, Jeremiah is encouraging the exiles to return to the land for their Messiah is about to be born. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I bring back their captivity, the Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. What a journey is ahead for Israel to Babylonian exile and back again And yet in the end, the Lord will refresh their weary souls. And then Jeremiah says, After this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Apparently, what he had seen so far in chapters 30 and 31 had been communicated to him in a dream. For now he awakes. God has made such sweet dreams and such sweet promises. And he's not done. Verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. The dream that Jeremiah saw was a mixture of sweet and sour, hope and horror. There is judgment ahead, but the purification will be followed by a time of blessing. Verse 29. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This was a popular proverb at the time. In other words, the reason I've got bad tastes in my mouth is because my parents sucked on sour grapes. Let's shift the blame. Let's blame our parents. People today no longer quote this proverb. Oh, that doesn't mean they don't live by it. Parents get a bum deal these days. You know that? If you're a parent, you know. All our dysfunctions are somehow blamed on our parents. The deficiency of our parenting is the cause of all our problems. And yet notice how God replies. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes... His teeth shall be set on edge. God is saying everyone is personally responsible for their behavior. If there's a tart taste in your mouth, it means that you've been eating the sour grapes. Everybody's parents probably made some mistakes, but we have now all had ample opportunity to turn it around with some good choices of our own. And then verse 31 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now understand, this is going to be a qualitatively different covenant than the old one. I guess we should back up a bit. Remember, a covenant establishes the terms of a relationship. And whenever God has wanted to create a relationship with mankind, He's done so through a covenant. The parties that enter that relationship, they do so by agreeing to the terms of the covenant. You remember when God brought Israel from Egypt to be His own, He ushered them to Mount Sinai where He gave them terms, a covenant. It consisted of three things. He gave them commandments. He gave them cleansing which was a system of sacrifices. And he gave them consequences, a series of blessings and curses. There were 613 commandments in the Old Covenant. They regarded morality, civics, ceremony. But the people sinned. They violated these commandments. And thus God constructed a way of cleansing, a sacrificial system to cover their sin. This included sacrifices and priests and feast days and even a temple where they presented their offerings. And then to provide added motivation to keep the law, God gave to Israel blessings and curses. He said, if you obey me, this is how I'll bless you. If you disobey me, this is how I'll curse you. This was the old covenant. The sad history, though, the sad story is that they failed to live up to the covenant. And the desperate conditions that they now face at the time of Jeremiah were exactly as God predicted, and they were the results of them failing to live by the old covenant. And yet, in the wake of their failure, God doesn't leave them hopeless. He still wants a relationship with the Jews, and so He promises new terms, a new covenant, a better covenant. And through Jeremiah... Through Ezekiel in Babylon, through Joel and other prophets, God promises this new covenant. It won't be activated for 600 years until the time of Jesus. For just as the old covenant was ratified with blood, so will the new covenant be ratified with blood. But not the blood of bulls and goats. That's not part of it. No, the perfect blood. God's only son. Just before Jesus was crucified, he took the cup and he said, This is my blood of the new covenant. You see, on the cross of Jesus, he did more for us than just forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a great blessing. I'm I'm appreciative. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. But there's more to it than just forgiveness. For on the cross, Jesus created for us a new way to relate to God. New terms for a relationship that had soured. In verse 32 here, God compares himself to a heartbroken husband whose wife has betrayed him, who's been unfaithful. The new covenant was a way of restoring her. I think it was as much a relief to God as it is a revival in us. What Jesus did was monumental. Here it is, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The old covenant consisted of laws written on stone tablets. 
There was nothing wrong with the law that God had given to Moses. The law of God was perfect. The law didn't fail the Jews. It was the Jews who failed to keep the law. The problem was where the law was written. Stone tablets. They can be neglected, can't they? They can be rejected. They can be forgotten. They can be misunderstood. They can be misapplied. Stone tablets can be taken out of context. You can obey them in action, but not in attitude. They can even serve to discourage you rather than encourage you. But not the new covenant. For rather than write his laws on stone tablets, God has written his intentions, his laws in our minds and in our hearts. You don't lose what's written in your mind and in your heart. You can lose a stone tablet, but not what's written inside you. He puts in us the desire to obey Him and to love Him. This is an incredible thing. The old covenant was too dependent on human willpower, whereas the new covenant is God's work. Our only part is faith. The law told men what to do, but didn't give them the power to do it. The new covenant puts that power in our hearts. Works in us from the inside out. I love this little quote. To work and run the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, then gives me wings. Verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Under the new covenant, we'll all have a, per, a personal, intimate relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord through Jesus Christ. No longer will it just be the priest in the know. We'll no longer need an intermediary before we can approach God. Under the new covenant, we can experience God firsthand. Every Christian has a backstage pass to God. Isn't that incredible? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Another pitfall of the old covenant is that it only offered a temporary pardon. How do we know? The sacrifices had to be repeated every year. Year in and year out. You see, they covered sin, but they never erased the sin. Whereas the blood of the new covenant not only forgives, but it causes God to forget. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It's a permanent pardon. Under the old covenant, the Jews were on probation, you could say. They weren't fully pardoned. The old covenant trained us to think of God as our parole officer. We're always having to check in. He's trying to catch us messing up. But the new covenant teaches us that God is a loving Father who cheers for us. His Spirit empowers us to do good. You see, all Christians live under the new covenant but some live as if they were under the old. And this is what's sad. They try to grind out their own obedience. They try to produce their own righteousness instead of resting in God's forgiveness, trusting in His Spirit to do the living in their life. When Jesus activated the new covenant, He didn't institute a new set of rules. He led us in a whole new way of living. And then verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. 
If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me. In other words, Israel's national survival is as certain as the sunrise, as the tides that go in and out. God is committed to His people. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the sea of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Hey, the United States may change its policies towards Israel, to their own peril, by the way. But God will never change. He will never abandon Israel. He is committed to His people. Verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananiel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garib. Then it shall turn toward the Goath and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. Now, Jeremiah is predicting the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And he provides a surveyor's description of the boundaries. And this is vital because there are folks who deny God's promises to Israel and they try to spiritualize them and apply them to the church. But that's not what Jeremiah does here, is it? He gives us a very literal, physical layout of the rebuilt city. He's not trying to spiritualize anything. God is sending us a message here. His promises to Israel should be taken literally. Don't spiritualize them. They're they're as real as these dimensions. As the corner of of the corner gate and the tower of Hananiel. They're, They're that tangible. They're that real. That's how committed God is to Israel. One day, Israel will return to the land and God will establish and raise up their kingdom. And speaking of Jerusalem, verse 40 ends. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. Here's another reason why this passage speaks of future events. After Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, it didn't last forever. The Romans destroyed it again in 70 AD. And here the Lord says that it will never be thrown down. Thus, obviously, this refers to the Jerusalem that Jesus will rebuild when he returns. And there we have chapters 30 and 31. 